See ya. <clears throat> okay, that's it for the announcements, so let's jump in. We are in Exodus chapter 34. Um, I was gone last week. We um, were on vacation. Uh, we do a big family vacation, and um, ours got cut short. We had a little baseball thing going last week, and so um, our week has been a lot of fun. It's been very full. Uh, we've had a lot of nights where we've been up to midnight watching nine-year-olds play baseball, believe it or not. They let children stay up that late playing park and rec baseball, but it was fun. We had a great time and um, just very thankful. But I say all that to say uh, it seems like a great and appropriate opportunity just to talk about the other people who stand in this pulpit. And so a lot of times churches, particularly people in my role, hold tight the pulpit. And I love preaching. I love teaching. I love being leading here. Um, But I am extremely thankful for the men that God has called to, to teach alongside of me. And if you guys know anything about me, I, I, we want to promote multiple voices up here because we think it's good for all of us to not just hear the same goon up here week after week after week. Okay, I was talking about the other guys, not me, of course. Um, but I, I just want to say thank you to Andrew and Jared who faithfully and consistently come up here and, and preach the Word of God. And you can tell that God is growing their giftings, He's growing their callings. And um, as I was driving back uh, from the beach and listening to Jared teach last week, I'm just so confident in what God's doing here. And that has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with who God is bringing in here, even with Caroline and Riley and the whole team. It's amazing. And so I just want to say that in front of all of you. um, But I'm very thankful for the men who stand in this pulpit um, when I'm not here or even when I am here. And we think that it's important that they're teaching as well. There's also someone new in the house. I don't know if he's actually in the house right now, but um, East Gunn was born a couple weeks ago, like a week and a week ago, I think, right on the nose. And he is not in here, but you make sure you say hey to him. And he is adorable. That is uh, Riley and Jordan. Riley is our worship leader, as their newest baby, and um, we're excited for them. So let's jump in then uh, to Exodus 34. Our, our task for today is verses 10 down through the end of chapter 34. So uh, 10 through 35, and what we're going to do is we're going to break this up into a handful of chunks, but before I dive in here, what I want to do is I'm not going to give us a full recap, but I do want to recap last week because it's really important for us to understand what was happening in the first nine verses of Exodus 34 so that we can really understand what is happening this morning. And so the goal, though, I think for all of us, and maybe this is just helpful to be reminded, but our goal in studying Exodus, and we've been taking our time, and we've been going verse by verse, and we've been doing it now for a long time, but our goal in studying Exodus the way that we've done it is to learn about the nature and character of God so that our hearts would be drawn in worship of him, right? And so that's why we do this. And so last week's passage is really one of these kind of mountaintops, really a peak in Exodus when we get to understand God's nature and character because he says, this is who I am, okay? And so if you go back and look at Exodus 34, verse 6, I want to read this, verses 6 and 7, so that we can be reminded. It says, the Lord passed before him, this is uh, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You know, I think from the very beginning, my prayer and our prayer as a teaching team has been that our hearts would be stirred and our affections drawn 
towards the unwavering faithfulness of God. And we see that here. We see very clear attributes of God. Who is God? This is God, right? And so we see these things, that God is merciful, that he's gracious, that he's slow to anger. He's unlike us. He's steadfast in his love and his faithfulness. He's forgiving. All of these things culminate in Moses' pursuit of, of God, right? Who should I tell him that you are? And he gives him, tell him that I am the great I am. I am Yahweh. And now over time, God has proven these attributes, and now he's declaring them. So he has always been merciful. He has always been gracious. He has always been slow to anger. He's always been steadfast in his love and his faithfulness. And he's always been forgiving. And yet now he's declaring them. And ultimately what we see is that he proves them in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what we've said all along through Exodus is we can't understand Exodus theologically until it points us to Jesus. And so all of these attributes are things that we see in Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to take these real quick before we jump into our text for this morning. What does it mean for God to be merciful? Well, it means that he's sympathetic to our weaknesses, right? So we, we oftentimes will give the definition of mercy and grace like this. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, okay, a.k.a. not being sent to hell. That's mercy. Grace, though, is receiving what we do not deserve, which is eternal life in Christ, We do not deserve it, and yet it is given to us as a free gift. And the scripture says, of no merit of our own. That's what grace is. You can't earn grace. You can't work towards grace. You can't achieve grace. Grace is a gift that is given, and it's bestowed on God's children. So God is merciful, and and he's gracious. He shows us his undeserved favor. Mercy and grace, though, are fulfilled. We see these perfectly in Jesus. The next attribute is that he is slow to anger. I'm so thankful for this. I think a lot of times in life we, we say, we'll say to people, or we'll hear people say, I wish that God were fair. Have you ever heard anyone say that before? I wish God were fair. And usually it's, it's coming on the tail end of like, why does God allow good things or bad things to happen to good people, right? You've heard this statement before. We've talked about it here. But if we were to have, if God was to be fair, I promise you that is not what you want. God's fairness is his righteousness. And sin cannot stand in the presence of his righteousness. And so for God to be fair would be for him to let us wallow in our sin. That is what we deserve. And yet, because he is merciful and he is gracious and he is slow to anger, he is completely unlike me, then we can stand in glory because of Jesus fully and finally and forever. This is who God is displaying himself to be. God is abounding in his steadfast love and faithfulness. What does this mean? It means that he always follows through on his love. He always follows through on his promises. There is not a promise that he has ever made that he has not kept. I know it's raining. I know it's the summer. But amen. I mean, he has never made a promise that he hasn't fulfilled. And the promise, there it is, the one I paid him. Okay, the one, right, the one, the promise that he's made that Christ will come, come back and make all things new will happen because he has always been faithful to keep his promises. The last one we see is that God is a forgiving God. The Hebrew word here literally means to lift or to carry. This is what forgiveness means. It means, so when we sin, we take on this burden of death. 
right? To be forgiven is for that burden to be not just removed, but to be removed and placed on someone else. And this is what we see in Jesus. He takes away our sin, lifting the burden and guilt off of our shoulders and places them fully on Jesus. And that is what was taken to the cross, okay? Just to keep it clear, the cross was meant for us, and yet Jesus took it on our behalf. So what is Moses' response that we see in last week's passage? His rightful response was humble worship, That should be our response when we see that God's merciful and that he's gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he's steadfast in his love and his faithfulness, that he's forgiving. Those things should stir our affections to worship him. Okay? So now, verse 10, chapter 34. We're going to go down through verse 17. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These were all the enemies of God's people. Verse 12. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You see, Israel was being impacted by surrounding cultures. Right? This is what we said this a lot. The easy work was getting Israel out of Egypt. The hard work was getting Egypt out of Israel. Okay? So what do we see here is that as you go in and there are these other places, you have to keep their you have to keep who you are. The identity that God has given us is not the same as the culture of the world around us. And he's warning them. All these ites, all these enemies of God, their culture will eventually creep into Israel. Okay? So here's what we see in verse 13. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars. Cut down their ashram. Verse 14. You shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, here's what this means, okay? Now, we've already dealt with this earlier in Exodus, but I don't expect for you to go back and find which week that was and all this stuff, so I'm just going to give it to you again. He is not jealous of you. He is jealous for you and for his glory, okay? He doesn't want your stuff. He wants you, okay? So this whole thing of like, whoa, God's imperfect because he's jealous of me. Why would God be jealous of me? Like, I don't even make all A's. He's not, Okay? He is perfect in his splendor and his glory, and he is jealous for you because you were created in his image. That's what the jealousy of God means. And ultimately, what he's jealous of or jealous for is his glory, okay? And we exist for his glory, all right? Verse uh, 15, all right? Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they... That's what the Bible says, okay? And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. Verse 16, and you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. So what is, what is the point here? Ultimately, I think the point here is that the idolatry, the sin in your life, if you don't kill it, it will kill you. This is exactly what we see happening in Israel. And they're about to be surrounded by more idols, by more little g-gods from all of these inhabitants of the land. Okay, And God is using Moses to declare in front of the people, don't let it creep in. 
All these little G-gods that are going to come in from these other cultures, they're going to be enticing. It's going to be like the little golden cat that you threw in the fire and pulled out, and you're like, what is this God, right? But the reality here, and what God is calling his people to, is to be faithful in worship of him and him alone, okay? And so when we see this, this whoring after other gods, what they're doing is they're selling their soul for their temporary gratification. Sorry if that one hurt. It is true. This is what we do. This is how we, we take on the idols of the world and we let them consume our hearts, right? And we talk about this a lot where we get the newest, shiniest thing or the, the phone with the most upgrades or the car with the most amount of whatever things and not a big car guy, but, right? So we have this reality of the world keeps bombarding us with stuff that says this is better than God. This is better than God. Oh, you don't like that one? Okay, we got another one. This one's also better than God. And we're pretty quick to be like... I don't know if that's true or not, but it feels right. And this is the warning for Israel as they go into the promised land. All of the inhabitants of the land, their little g-gods, would eventually consume. And this is a warning to them. So idolatry that isn't destroyed will end up destroying you. Okay? So whatever that thing is in your life, this is why we do life in community. Okay? This is why family is such a big part of everything that we do at the branch. Because we know I can't slay the idols in my own life. Okay? Ultimately, this is the work of Jesus and the Spirit of God in our lives. But it does, so oftentimes, God will use each other to do that together. Okay? So life together, we see this pursuit of holiness. We must work towards, strive towards putting sin to death continually and constantly. It is, it's hard, though, isn't it? It is really hard. Sometimes the thing that, things that appear to be the best in life are actually the things that will keep us the furthest from God. And that's the way that sin works. It's like that sweet little apple, the fruit in Eden, right? It looked really nice. It looked tasty. It looked sweet. But it wasn't the fruit. It was what they thought they would get when they took the fruit, which was not being with God, but being like God. Colossians 3, this is going to be on the screen. I want you to see it. Colossians 3, 5, Paul's writing, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives this list of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is, what's the word? Idolatry. So it's not just that we throw metals, precious metals, into a fire and we come out with these little idols, or you have a little Buddha sitting at your house with some incense that you're burning, or this, all the things, right? Oftentimes, idolatry is this, it's sexual immorality, it's impurity, it's passion, it's evil desire, it's covetousness. These things are idolatry. Listen to what James chapter 1 says. This is verses 13 through 15. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14 says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his, whose desire? His own desire. Okay, And then verse 15 says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see how this, you see this cycle that ultimately leads to death starts here with idolatry. So who does the tempting? I, I, I meet with a lot of people who are like, man, Satan's really tempting me to do this thing, or Satan's tempting me to do that thing. And I'm like, Satan's not omniscient. He's also not omnipotent. Right? He has power. But he's not all-powerful. He's in a place, not in all the places at once. He is not a threat globally. 
He could be a threat in seasons and at times in your life, but ultimately, evil desires come from our own broken nature, okay? So let's don't deflect like, oh man, Satan really is tempting me to do this thing. No, that is your evil, wicked heart. Sorry, but that's true. This is what James is trying to say, okay? So look at it. Let no one say when he's tempted that I'm being tempted by God, because it's himself that is tempting ourselves, not God, not capital H himself, but ourselves. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. That should be a wake-up call for all of us. And so let's, as brothers and sisters in Christ, commit to striving and working towards righteousness, because where righteousness stands, sin is defeated. It is. Okay. It is. Man, I'm ready for the college students to come back. All right, next, in verse 18, we start to get some reminders, okay? We start to get these reminders, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here, which I know you'll probably be thankful for, uh, but we get a reminder about feasts and Sabbath rest. So I'm going to go from 18 through 28, okay? So starting in verse 18, it says, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you. At the time appointed in the month Abib, for in the month Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Verse 21, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest." You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year you shall, shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Verse 25, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. We've done this before. I have no idea what this means, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to boil a goat in its mom's milk. Okay? And if you are, will you come talk to me before you do that? Okay? It seems like a bad idea. I, I, again, I don't know why, but this is what the word of the Lord says. So just don't do that. Are we good there? Okay, I'm going to hold you accountable to that. Verse 27, the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. Hello. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So if you remember from last week, we have the, the, the stones that the Ten Commandments were on. Moses threw them down right, in disgust, and they broke, okay? So Moses physically breaks the stones. Israel figuratively broke the stones, okay? And so now God, in his steadfast love, and he's slow to anger, come back up on the mountain, and I'm going to do this again, okay? And so for 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses now is gone again. So what do we see here? That feasts in the Sabbath are being woven into the rhythm of their lives, okay? What does it say about the Sabbath here that we haven't seen quite yet? All right, let's go back and look at it, okay? You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruit of wheat. Oh, sorry, uh, verse 21. 
I skipped ahead. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and in harvest. So what does that mean? You have to take a rest. It doesn't matter how busy you are, okay? It doesn't matter if it's tax season. Sorry, accountants. It doesn't matter if it's finals week. Sorry, college students. It doesn't matter if it's grandparents week at school or whatever the thing is. We can be very distracted, right? In, in my world, we do this. Oh, I'm just trying to get this project off the ground. If we, could just, if we could just get launched, we'll rest after that. And yet what it's saying here is, in your busy season and in your slow season, I'm calling you to rest because in your rest you will dwell in my presence. If you don't rest, you're going to forget that I am God. This is what God is reminding the people. And so we see this repetitive refrain of Sabbath. Okay, We've talked about it now three or four times up here in different messages we get it some more, it's coming down the road, okay? Because we're terrible at taking a Sabbath or observing the Sabbath or resting at all. So whatever the thing is, though, this is what I want to be the takeaway. I know I'll probably do this again when it's uh, next week when we talk about Sabbath again. But no matter how busy you are, if you can't slow down enough to observe rest, there's your idol, okay? If that one thing, if this one report or this one event or this one, what you, I, whatever the thing is, okay, right? If this one project getting started or this one client meeting, right? If that's the thing that's keeping you from resting and it's ultimately keeping you from resting in the presence of God, that's your idol. And you, we, we need to slay it together. We need to cut its knees off, okay? And you see those things in my life. Let's go together. I've got some bats in the car, all right? And we'll go hack at them together. But this is how serious this is, okay? Because God knows He's sovereign over all, okay? Unlike Satan, he is omniscient, which means he knows all things. He is omnipotent, so he's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's in all places at one time. So he has all of these characteristics and attributes that Satan doesn't, which means he knows every aspect of your life. So whether you're aware of your idols yet or not, he is. And so we should trust him enough to dwell and to rest in his presence because in, his, in our resting and in our dwelling in his presence, we will see him for who he is which are the attributes that we got in Exodus 34, verse 6, okay? All right, let's keep going. Verse 29, down through the end. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that, his, that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron, verse 30, and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Now, I don't know how you would respond, but if I stood up here one, one day, now sometimes I'll have a shiny face. It's different, okay? It just means I didn't wash my face good, or I'm really hot and I'm sweating, okay? Or I'm nervous. So if you see a gleam coming across, just know that I'm not doing well. Pray for me, okay? This is, not, this is Moses' face is shining because he had seen the glory of God. And his face is literally reflecting like a mirror, reflecting the glory of God to the people of Israel. Can you imagine, though, like, you're waiting, okay? You're sitting here, and you're, you're anxious at this point because you know you've messed up, right? This is a few chapters ago. And now God calls Moses back up to where God does a lot of his best work, and now Moses comes down, and he's just like, ah, 
I don't know where that came from. I'm really sorry about that. But right, that's my shining face sound, okay? If you're listening on this to the podcast this week and you don't know the context, just know that's my shining face sound. All right? So that people see his face shining, and what do they do? What is their response? When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Moses is trying to protect the people. Verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with them, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This would be captivating, wouldn't it? It would kind of be awe-inspiring. It might take your breath away to see someone's face shining because of the glory of God. They didn't care anything about Moses' face. I'm assuming, I don't know this for a fact, Moses probably wasn't the best-looking dude on the planet, okay? I think Egypt probably beat him up pretty good. The wilderness certainly did, right? Hadn't shaved in a while. But all of a sudden now, because the glory of God passed by him, his face is shining, literally reflecting the glory of God. Ultimately, Moses' glowing face points us to Jesus, who is the full embodiment, the full radiance of God's glory. It's not just a reflection. It's the fullness of God's glory. We, saw, we, we see Moses asking for God to show him his glory in verse 33, and after Moses actually sees his glory, this is the response. Philip Ryken says this. He says, There was something glorious about the law. The Israelites could see it in Moses' face, which was shining so brightly that they could hardly bear to look at it. However, the law could not bring full and final salvation, and thus whatever radiance it had was fading away. Its glory was true, but temporary. The glory was pointing to a future glory to come that is fulfilled and embodied perfectly in Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1. This is probably a passage that you're familiar with. This is verses 3 and 4. It says, He, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So all those attributes, Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by what? The word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is the radiance of the glory, not the reflection of the glory. I hope you see that. Jesus is the better Moses who can stand, who can petition, who can priest for us like Moses never could. Jesus is the final fulfillment of this promised land that the people so desperately wanted. And their pursuit of that promise kept distracting them from the presence of God. And yet God continued to pursue them, continues to pursue us today. I love 2 Corinthians. I'll use this to start winding us down. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Just listen and read along. Start in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death 
carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end. Praise God for that. Okay? Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what, is being, what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king forever, without end. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Just real quick, this is not in my notes, this is a bit of a rabbit trail. The one thing I pray for us the most is boldness, because I think the one thing we lack the most is courage, okay? So just as we read this, just know that if you, if you want to know how I pray for you, how I pray for me, it's this right here, okay? And maybe you'll pray this for me too. I could use, to be, use uh, some more boldness, I think. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome. This is in the New Testament, by the way, okay? Might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. That should break our hearts because only through Christ is it taken away. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is, all God's people said, freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. So that exact imprint that we were just talking about, we're being transformed into that exact imprint. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The gospel of Jesus is more glorious than the law because he's not a reflection of glory. He's the radiance of glory. And so as we go out into the world this week, I pray that you will have the same kind of boldness as Paul has as he's writing this. The same kind of boldness that Moses has as he wanted. At what point does he know that his face is shining? Okay? I don't know. I'm just curious. I'll ask that one day. I will get an answer when we get to heaven maybe. But I pray that you'll have the same kind of boldness to wander up onto a mountain for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water just to dwell in the presence of God because you believe that God has something greater for you and for your people. That we'll have the boldness to take the gospel where the veil is still covering the hearts of the people. God has called us. Jesus' last command to his his disciples was to go. Teach them. Baptize them. Make disciples. Pull the veil back. Let them see my glory because I'm not a reflection. I'm the real thing. I am the perfect radiance of glory. So we need to be reminded a lot of those things, don't we? We need to be reminded to rest. We need to be reminded to worship. 
We need to be reminded that all of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. All of them. And as we go out into the world, that's what we are carrying. We are carrying the fulfillment of those promises. Our boldness isn't in our ability to communicate the gospel, but in the power of the gospel in and of itself. Okay? So if you don't feel equipped, you're not. But God can still use you, and he will use you if you will allow him to. All he needs is your desire. He will do the rest. The reality is I've been teaching and preaching for a very long time. Okay? I haven't changed the heart of one single person. Some call me a failure. Some call me faithful. I can't change your heart. And I know that. It took me a while to figure that out. Full disclosure, I've repented from that. But I can't. Andrew can't. Jared can't. Riley can't. Our elders can't. Only the Spirit of God can convict a heart. And so I say that to, to tell you, if the professionals can't change the heart of another person, neither can you. And that's not your job. Your job is to be faithful, to be bold, and to be courageous. And as you do those things, God will do the rest. That is his promise. Amen? So as we go to the table to take communion, I, I pray that you'll be reminded of those things. I pray that you'll be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ's return. I pray that you'll be reminded of the boldness that we can have in the gospel because we bring nothing to the table of our salvation except for our brokenness and our need of salvation. I pray that as we go to the table that this little nourishment would, be remind, would remind us of the eternal nourishment that we have in the presence of God. I want you to know that I really do pray these things for you, that I love you a lot. I'm very thankful to be your pastor. I'm thankful for the men and the women, people like Caroline and so many others who serve our church in so many significant ways. Um, I'm thankful for that. And so now as we go to the table, I pray that your soul would be nourished and that you'd be reminded that the gospel of Jesus is more glorious than the law of Moses. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are very thankful um, for a time uh, to gather a time to worship, a time to reflect and to remember. I pray for these brothers and sisters uh, over the next few minutes that you would stir their hearts, stir their affections, draw their spirit to you. And I pray that you would give us um, just a mighty courage uh, as we go back into the world. I pray that you would give us a boldness uh, just to be signals uh, pointing to you that we would be light in a dark place. I pray that you would uh, give us freedom uh, to walk boldly. So we love you. We thank you for Jesus. I thank you for this church. I pray now that you would go before us as we respond to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.